Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Okay, well, thank you all for being here. I think we're going to have a great conversation today. Um, Welcome to today's Commonwealth Club program. I am Julia Flynn Seiler. I'm an author and a journalist, and the club would like to thank the Bernard Osher Foundation for supporting today's Good Lit event. And before we get started, a few reminders. Our program is being recorded, so we kindly ask that you silence your cell phones for the duration of the program. If you have any questions for Matthew, please fill them out on the question cards on your seats. Uh, And it is my true pleasure to introduce our guest speaker, Matthew Davenport, who is author of the, The Longest Minute, The Great San Francisco Earthquake and Fire of 1906. Uh, Matthew is a lawyer, he is a journalist, and he's a member of the Authors Guild. And his previous book, First Over, The Attack on Katigny, how do you pronounce that, Matt? Contigny. Contigny, yes. thank you very much. America's first battle of World War I was a finalist for the 2015 Guggenheim Lehrman Prize in Military History. So, Matt, thank you so much for being here. Let me say that his book is has made a huge contribution to our understanding of the earthquake and what happened in 1906. I thoroughly enjoyed it, not to mention really was impressed by his research. So I hope you will um, enjoy our conversation about his book today, and his book will be available afterwards for purchase. Uh, so Matt, I found this so fascinating and so well-researched. What inspired you to write this book? Because you don't live in California, do you? No, I don't. I'm on the East Coast. I hope nobody holds that against me. Um, No, I was in the research for my first book, uh, which covered the first American soldiers on the Western Front that fought the German army. And because that was going to make big news, there were reporters embedded with them. And one of the reporters was a a man named James Hopper. And I'd never heard that name, but the soldiers apparently knew who he was. And they would write home or in later memoirs would say, oh, uh, tell their parents and their relatives, I I got to meet the San Francisco earthquake reporter. And that kind of struck me. This was 1918. I knew that the earthquake and fire had happened in 1906. I really didn't know any more than that about it. And uh, I found his account of combat to be well-written, transportive, but very factual without exaggerating. And uh, so it had just so happened that summer, my wife and I came to San Francisco on our anniversary trip. And when I was here, I saw how much the city was affected by the earthquake and fire. I, n- I never knew much about it. And the more I learned about it, the more I wanted to read his account. I read his account. It was very well-written. It was transportive again. And I said, I'd like to know more. So I got, I started reading some about it, but everything I read would focus a lot on geology or tectonic plates or the science of fire spreading and not about the people or the cause and effect. How did this happen? Because it seemed very unnatural to me that the ground moving would cause a three-day firestorm that kills this many people and just almost completely destroys a major American city. So that's when I decided maybe I should write or research into answering the questions and write the book that I want to read. And that's how I got started. 
So it was really through a voice. It was through one person's chronicle Mm -hmm. of the 1906 earthquake and firestorm that you got into this book. But I I think, for me at least, what distinguishes your book um, is the extent to which you follow many different characters, and you almost provide a kaleidoscopic view of what happened during those terrible terrible days. And I was so impressed. He extensively tapped a number of our great collections in California, including the uh, the Bancroft Library at, uh, at UC Berkeley and many other libraries, the uh, San Francisco History uh, Room at the Public Library, other places. And you have something like 80 pages of endnotes, which as I am a research person myself, so I was like, yes, this is fantastic. (laughs) And will help a lot of other historians and a lot of people who are interested in the subject um, going forward. Tell us a little bit about your research process, if you would. Well, I'll start by saying that I I had an endless battle with my editor over the endnotes because he didn't want to put them in the book. And I I said, speaking for the nerds, I really want to have... (laughs) To, I really want to have these in there so people know where this can be found. Um, I started, I, I think that not knowing much about the event itself was a, a strength because I was able to organically build this from primary sources. I, I shunned published accounts and went right back to the archives and said, I really want to know, since this kind of exists in a a hazy mirage of the past. Um, no 1906 survivors are still with us. They've all passed on. And it's kind of trapped in a grainy black and white photographs, but that happened in living color. So I wanted to go back to the sources, the people, the letters, diaries, journals, uh, memoirs, published and unpublished, of people who witnessed it. And so I went to the San Francisco Public Library. There were many uh, accounts there that had not been consulted before. Bancroft Library, California Historical Society. One of the treasure troves I really found was down in the National Archives in San Bruno. Uh, There were the transcripts of these um, trials, uh, court cases. As many people know, there was a lot of litigation over insurance companies not paying damages, denying claims. And the question in all those centered around how did the fire start and, and how did it spread? And so you get the verbatim testimony of hundreds of eyewitnesses in these cases given just months after the event and it's uh, there's testimony from everyone from mayor schmitz all the way down through firefighters police officers night watchmen and uh, bartenders and and barbers uh and house cooks that that discuss how and where individual fires started and how they spread and this is the kind of color none of that had ever been consulted before for previous books. So I, I started there and, and built up from there. Okay. Now, I know you're a lawyer. I just have to ask, how did you know to go to the National Archives and find those insurance transcripts? That's a great idea. Well, I've, I once I learned there was litigation, I knew there... Aha! <laughs> once I knew there was litigation, I knew these... There's a lot of money involved, which means these had to be appealed. I knew these yep. judgments had been appealed. And that means there's a reported case at the Court of Appeals and the California Supreme Court. When I found that, also in federal court, the Ninth Circuit, once I found out that those had been reported, I knew you can't have an appeal without a transcript. Yep. So I started looking for the transcripts, and I said, they have to survive. There's there's a dozen of these. Well, there were four that I found the transcripts uh, for these cases, and um, they were a treasure trove. 
Amazing. <laughs> Bravo. That's really remarkable. So I, uh, I was wondering if you would like to share some of your photographs with us because not only did you were you an archive rat digging <laughs> around you know at nara down in san bruno's mm-hmm. you know, those wonderful transcripts but you were walking the streets of san francisco and trying to understand the geography of it and, and the buildings and what this landscape looked like then and what it looks like now and i was wondering if you'd like to share a few sure um apparently i can operate this and photos will come up and i don't know exactly Okay, here we go. All right, so I'm going to start here. What I did was um, I would I would find these uh, photographs, and, and some of them, I think most of them you've seen, but I, I think it's better to tell the story to, to do the then and now, to see how things look now. Of course, this is the Aronson Building on the right. This is 3rd and Mission, South of Market, and that's my hand, so let me back up. All right, so I like to show how things look this was actually before the fires spread through south of market the way it looked uh, after just the earthquake damage and that's one of the there's not as many photographs taken south of market before the fires because they spread through there uh, so quickly within a couple hours all this was uh, burned um, the next this is looking down from knob hill um, so this is looking from down jones street from california and uh, I like to just show how things look now. Uh, you can see the devastation. Uh, this was, of course, post-fire. Um, and you see what really is just an apocalyptic landscape. You've seen these photographs, but when you see now the contrast with how it looks. Um, this is looking at Kearney Street toward the Call Building, now Central Tower. This was, again, before the fires came through. Call Building was burning, but it had not burned north of market there yet. And, of course, to the right, that's how it looks today. Um, And this is looking down, let me see, this is Washington Street, uh, after the fires had burned through and uh, the way it looks today from the exact same spot. I did a lot of research with the Sanborn. If you're familiar with the 1905 Sanborn insurance maps, they show where certain businesses and buildings were then. Cross-reference them with city directories, you can see... Uh, where photographs were taken so you can stand in the exact same place. I became kind of obsessed with this and stood in traffic uh, (laughs) a few times more than maybe I should have. Um, And maybe I'll get to one more here. This is the famous Arnold Genta photograph looking down Sacramento Street as the fires were spread. This is looking, of course, east down from near Powell. And um, this is how it looks today in the exact same location. Thank you so much for sharing those with sure. us. We're going to come back to more photographs, but first we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, about the story and, and the characters that you, you found. So, Matt, did you have a working hypothesis when you began the book about what caused the fires that broke out in the aftermath of the earthquake? I... I read news, the things that were close to the published accounts that I would read were newspaper accounts. And um, I, I didn't get to publish sources till the end. So the, the newspaper accounts blamed it on broken gas mains and electric fires. Uh, there were really no newspaper accounts. And, and unfortunately, that myth has persisted. 
that there were 50 fires that spread into a firestorm and they started because uh, gas pipes broke and electric wires arced. And that's really not how the fires started. Most of the fires started in unoccupied commercial spaces. It was steam-generated electricity then. There were a lot of um, fires that started, for example, in laundry houses where uh, they used uh, burning furnaces to heat the presses and the irons in the mornings, and they spilled out. These are unoccupied. There's no one there to put these fires out, so that's how they they ignited and spread. More fires started in drugstores than anywhere else. Eight of the first fires started in drugstores, and that's because they had flammable liquid that thought at the time would be helpful in home remedies. Um, they had them stored in glass jars on high shelves, and they would break, they would mix and ignite. Uh, many of these, like diethyl ether, uh, were prone to igniting and even uh, exploding at high temperatures. Many of them were oxidizers that would fuel flames that started. So uh, three of the biggest fires that spread, in fact, the biggest one south of market was at Mac and Company's drugstore on Fremont that went off, as witnesses said, like fireworks. That was one of these trials that happened because the business across the street ignited because of the Mac Company. Uh, drugstore fire. So th- th- I was early on, I that was my curiosity. How does this start and how does it spread? And then you realize it spreads because there were insufficient fire codes and building codes, despite the fire chief's dire warnings. There were insufficient uh, enforcement of them. You had the Board of Public Works that was headed by Mayor Schmitz's brother. And uh, he favored he had favored developers they would accept bribes from and uh, say, we'll go ahead and grant this permit. You don't have to do fireproofing. You don't have to comply with what few codes we do have. And uh, so you had uh, insufficient firewalls, bad zoning with um, collapsible, uh, flammable tinderbox death traps of lodging houses that were constructed of wood right next to boiler works and steam shops and drugstores. And so once it ignited in commercial spaces, it spread into residential. And that's why south of market more than anywhere, you had so many, you have the problem compounded with the Spring Valley Water Company's own corruption of bribing the water committee and the board of supervisors to not, to not grant uh, chief, the fire chief, Dennis Sullivan's repeated requests for more hydrants and bigger water mains through the poor districts, the working class districts, they still had the same size water mains that had been there when the population was a third what it was in 1906. It could not even meet basic needs. Yeah, that was some of the most shocking parts of your book. Again and again, Mm -hmm. the firemen would go to different locations and look at look at these spigots and there was nothing coming out of them there was no water to fight these Mm -hmm. fires and i can only imagine i don't need to imagine i can read in your book in part how they were feeling and the frustration they Mm -hmm. felt over that so that had to do with corruption as well Mm -hmm. or a monopoly by the spring hill water company could you tell us more about that monopoly and what was going on there yeah, this, as I said, this uh, Spring Valley Water Company Valley. had been, yeah, it started in 1859, and it's the California legislature granted them basically a 20-year monopoly 
uh, on the water, uh, municipal water source for San Francisco City and County. That was extended uh, through a lot more bribery. Uh, effectively for 70 years, it wasn't purchased until 1930 by the city. Uh, it was an ongoing fight. And um, they had installed water mains that met the population demands of the time in 1870 and 1875 to 1880. Those water mains were four, six inch. I didn't know anything about this. Understand, I'm not a water engineer and I'm not a, I'm none of these things. I'm not a seismologist. I don't know know any of this. So I had to, I had to go through old municipal city records and read schematics of maps of the Spring Valley uh, pipes to understand why is Chief Sullivan keep barking at the Board of Supervisors? I need more bit, bigger and stronger water mains through these areas where you're allowing landlords to fill these lodging houses and hotels, and they were called hotels, but really it was monthly boarders, most of them, uh, with transient laborers and working class people and widows. And they have they can't even meet water pressure on the third floor of these. So if a hydrant gets tapped, water pressure for the whole block drains, and that's when the pipes are intact. When they break in the soft soil beneath, because it was on fill land, much as south of market, as you know, um, then there's no water pressure. And he had been fighting for that and an auxiliary water system for many years. And they finally granted the auxiliary water system, but not until the last minute, and it, construction had not begun yet. So the firefighters were fighting as as many people know that's not a myth they were fighting with no water there was water in reservoirs in the city but it wasn't delivered through most of the water mains i'm sorry i have to point out that at least in one instance they ended up using sewage to try to put out a fire they were that desperate they did. They am did. i right that's right the way yeah. the steam pump fire engines worked they had to suck water from cisterns and and um they would use the sewers in quite a few places. I only mention it in one place in the book because I thought that was enough as a vignette to give people <laughs> it was enough for me. the idea of the stench. But the, uh, the other was the water cisterns, which they had started after the six major fires in 1849 to 51 that had burned most of the city at the time during the gold rush. And these, uh, there were 63 water cisterns. They were supposed to be maintained by the city. And unfortunately, only 23 of them had water in them when the firefighters would lift a manhole on a cistern and drop their suction hose in, and it would be dirt and trash and mud, and they'd have to go another block. Well, the way they worked is they had to pump that water up, especially sometimes steep hills, as you know, to the next fire engine to pump it up to the next one because pressure was everything. And you're dealing with horse-drawn steam engines with a third the pressure of today's fire engines. It's amazing what they were able to accomplish. Holy moly. So what was the theory behind all the dynamiting that took place? Why, why were they doing that? So, there's, so this was one of the things that I read early on, that there was a lot of blame put on dynamite crews for starting fires. And that is half true, but there's a lot more context to it. The, the late, well, almost late, uh, he was mortally wounded in the morning of the earthquake, of course, Chief Sullivan lived for a few more days, but passed. So his, uh, as fire chief, he had a plan of blowing fire breaks ahead of the fire. The only way fire breaks work is if you use 
high explosives, which means destructive explosives that don't burn long. They burn quickly and destroy, like dynamite. Dynamite's not going to start a fire. You can burn dynamite. It's not going to blow up. Uh, it's not like black powder, a low explosive that burns slowly and starts fire. Well, Chief Sullivan knew this and had a plan to use dynamite because there was plenty in the within reach of San Francisco coming from a mining town. And blow fire breaks at least a block ahead of the fires. But he was not there. Now, the acting chief, uh, Doherty, and assistant chief Shaughnessy, they knew this. But the mayor and um, his political boss, Abe Roof, and um, the general, uh, General Funston, they did not know this. So they just ordered all explosive crews into the city. So the only thing the artillery crews have up at the Presidio and Fort Mason and engineer crews at Fort Mason were black powder. And that's not ideal. And they knew that. Now, the Army officers knew that. I, I highlight a Lieutenant Briggs who fights tooth and nail to say, we can't use black powder. We need to use dynamite. Well, they finally get dynamite from a construction crew, contractors at the Presidio, another construction crew down the peninsula. Eventually, some more comes from Pinal Point. And dynamite was what they needed. The problem is how they used it. The firefighters and, and police officers and lower-level enlisted soldiers that used the dynamite were under orders from Mayor Schmitz to only blow up buildings that were already on fire. So all they're doing is spreading that fire. If they blew up buildings that weren't on fire, they would blow a fire break. But once a building would catch, Lieutenant Briggs is yelling, we can't dynamite this, and they would do it under Schmitz's orders because he didn't want to destroy more of his friend's property and the commercial, the banking, now the financial district. And that's how it ended up spreading. It wasn't until the second afternoon that the Army colonel, who was the, pres- the Presidio post commander, finally said, we're going to do this the right way. And they blew dynamite uh, one block west of Van Ness on Franklin Street and actually stopped the fire from going westward. So it did work when it was employed correctly. Right, right. Oh, my goodness. So crazy. And, you know, it also highlights the um, bad luck that the fire chief essentially is taken out in that first minute. That's right. He's gone, and he had studied it. He had warned about it. He understood the system. And so, in a sense, San Francisco doesn't have any coordination whatsoever because there's Mm -hmm. not a powerful fire chief who is Mm -hmm. uh, giving guidance to the Army or to anybody else uh, what to do. That's right. So can you imagine what might have happened if he had been there and he had not been blown up or he had not died that first mm-hmm. first that's minute. Right. He didn't die the first minute. It was a few days later. Right, that's right. The point is taken. So um, tell us the role of the fire department as a whole in battling the blazes that uh, broke out across across the city. And they're very heroic, uh, mm-hmm. was my sense in reading your book. And that's another myth that persisted that the fires burned themselves out and that's not what happened the fire department what was great to come to this conclusion the fire department fought for three days and three nights without rest i i can't go to i mean you try to go 24 hours i used to be in the army and we would stay up 24 hours and i couldn't get beyond that i don't know how you go three days but they did, on their feet, without rest, with very little water, very little food, what they could find in stores that were in the path of fire. And they 
they stopped the fire. The fire department extinguished the fire. Um, now, the Army helped with dynamiting along Franklin Street um, and, and Van Ness. But the fire department kept it from going west of Octavia and Hayes Valley. They used a, a hydrant there that few people know about at Hayes and Buchanan that kept a steady pressure through the disaster. Um, and, of course, down in the Mission, everyone knows about the, the little giant, the gold hydrant, uh, that the fire department fought block by block, backing up, backing up, till they got to that water source and finally stopped it there. And uh, the big story on the waterfront was the Navy, that Lieutenant Frederick Freeman, this young Navy lieutenant, on his own initiative, assembles a really a firefighting flotilla of a Navy fireboat yard tug and uh, mine destroyer. Um, to come from Mare Island down to the waterfront by 10.30 the first day, and he had high-capacity, high-powerful pumps on each of those vessels that was able to help the fire department stop the fire right along here, uh, what was then East Street, now the Embarcadero, uh, stop it down where Folgers uh, Warehouse, uh, the new Folgers Warehouse was at the time, new at the time, and... uh, and you can see where the fire line is stair-stepped and saved the, um, southern, the so- southern Pacific Passenger Depot. You can see the ferry building and all the wharf was saved all the way up to Fisherman's Wharf. That was by the Navy helping the fire department keep pressure all the way up to North Beach when they stopped it on the third day. Mm-hmm. So, pumping salt water. For pumping water salt for water bay. through the engines, which they could pump salt water. They needed fresh water for their boilers, and he kept sending crews of his uh, yard tug and his fireboat over to Yerba Buena, well, then Goat Island, to get fresh water and bring it back for the fire department. So it was very much a, a joined effort. Well, I, I was walking uh, from the ferry uh, this morning from Larkspur uh, through the Embarcadero with uh, the historian Richard Torney, who's in the office, uh, the uh, audience, and it was so much fun to look at the ferry building and think of Lieutenant Freeman mm-hmm. and think about the tug and the, the hoses that he brought up. And if there's really any hero in your book, it is Lieutenant Freeman, wasn't it? And the initiative mm-hmm. that he took. Could you? I, I really like the personal stories of some of the people who were involved in the earthquake. Could you tell us a little bit more about him? Yes, uh, Frederick Freeman, uh, he commanded a torpedo boat destroyer uh, up at Mare Island, and they had just come back from target practice uh, down south, and he and his crew were, his crew was on leave. They were due back from Vallejo um, that morning at 8, and uh, that's when the earthquake struck, and he and his first officer, his engineer, felt it when the crew came back. He went ashore uh, because they got a wireless message. They did have wireless then. Uh, They had a wireless message that San Francisco was in flames, and he could start to see the smoke on the horizon. He goes ashore, and the admiral only gave him orders to assemble a medical team and take it to San Francisco to aid the wounded. That's it. He did not get any other orders, and he, but he knew what the pumps on his vessels could do, looked around Mare Island and said, I've got these three vessels available, let's go. And he split up his crew and got volunteers, and they went. And he saved the waterfront. If there's anyone that, you know, when you see the waterfront today, I mean, all the way down to um, where... The, 
the ballpark is, all the way up to Fisherman's Wharf. That's all because Frederick Freeman brought uh, his sailors to help the fire department. And uh, there really needs to be something in his name, a little plug, um, <laughs> along the waterfront in San Francisco to Frederick Freeman. The Freeman fan code. It really, really needs to be some recognition in the city because he did save the And the waterfront was critical in the relief efforts afterwards. I also try to highlight other people. I wanted to recenter this because so many books in the past, and, and ones at the time, early and mid-20th century, focused a lot on the men in charge. You have to talk about the men in charge. But I wanted to give more voice to uh, other people that had not gotten much of a voice before. Um, the residents of Chinatown, uh, the working class people south of Market, and also the, the women uh, in this. The, uh, I spend time dealing with a physician, um, Margaret Mahoney, who comes and volunteers her services at Mechanics Pavilion. Uh, and nurse Lucy Fisher, uh, Dora Thompson, who was a captain in the Army Nurse Corps at Presidio at the Army General Hospital. And um, also Charmian London. Everyone talks about Jack oh. London. But Charmian was a, a great writer in her own uh, respect. And I really liked her narrative and her account of their experience together. So I centered it around her more because I thought her story was more personal. I love that portion, and I, I love the fact that the two of them, they traveled from Sonoma. He got this fabulous assignment to cover the earthquake, but they had to get themselves down to the city, and the two of them are wandering through these devastated streets, and they were mm-hmm. such sensitive observers. It really made me want to read more about Charmian mm-hmm. and, after, uh, and Jack. Absolutely, absolutely. Jack. Yeah, that was great. That was great. Yeah, so you'd ha- they had to take a ferry over? What did, they, what, how did hor- they get By there? horseback, horseback, rail, and ferry. <laughs> yeah. Now, the other name that popped out at me was um, Police Sergeant Cook. And I know right. him from my book about Chinatown, right. uh, but also from my, my, you know, kind of rustling around the Bancroft uh, uh, archives. Um, tell us about uh, Jesse Cook. Um, Jesse Cook, I really came across his account I didn't know at the time that he would later become the San Francisco police chief, um, but he was a sergeant, had just left the Chinatown squad, as you know, uh, and was working what was called the Harbor District beat then. It was not called the Financial District then. It was Harbor and Banking Districts. And um, I, I, I focused on his account. It, it spoke to me because he was one of the few people outside and working and wide awake at the time of the earthquake. And he had such a great account standing on Washington Street down at uh, Davis, past Battery, and he's talking to a produce merchant, and the horse is acting up, because the horse is probably feeling the primary waves of the earthquake, and he, you, you can sense from, he has two accounts. One was given at the time that was later published in the Argonaut 20 years later. He has another account in his, in his papers and diary, at the Bancroft Library from 30 years later. And they're both so close together that he he really stuck to what happened, that he feels the building next to him, can feel it coming, can hear it, steps out away from the brick building, looks up Washington Street Hill to the west where the waves are coming from, and said it was like waves of an ocean coming down the street and the, and the, and the paving stones popping in and out. It's cinematic his account, and you can only imagine what he saw, and then he heads toward the building across the street, 
that then collapses in on itself, and he backs up from that and goes away from it to the other archway of a, a door across the street and sees the whole brick front of the building he left peel away and slam flat and kill two two men. And this is before the shaking even stops. And then he stays on his feet working down at the waterfront, helps at least two people that are carrying their dead relatives uh, onto the ferry to flee uh, and, and allows them to and works day and night through the disaster, ends up getting promoted later to captain and later becomes fire chief and police commissioner. Well, the other cinematic moment from his accounts was... The chickens. Could you tell us about the chickens? Oh, on the yes, one of the boxcars. One of the boxcars. That was on the uh, rail line that went north of the ferry building that had been left there. It was full of live chickens, and food was getting scarce by the second day, of course, um, as the fire was burning through the city. And uh, a lot of the men and the workers and the refugees that had made it down to the Embarcadero, then East Street, I have to keep saying that, um, saw that there was there were boxcars full of live chickens. And this was still very much a frontier town, and they think chicken is food. Yeah, we can just... <laughs> I don't think that way, but they, they certainly did. And so they're, they open up the boxcar. 2,000 chickens flying everywhere. Allow them. They're clucking everywhere. <laughs> and that's where one of the shootings happened, of course. One of the volunteer <laughs> militia men grabbed his rifle because some as he called it big big uh italian guy um wouldn't listen to him as he was walking away with the chickens when he told him to drop them and he ended up shooting them and he later got one of the few shootings that later got prosecuted Mm -hmm. and Uh, no no convictions no convictions none total of never prosecuted no convictions 12 12 people injured nine people died as I recall, at least, at least, at least twelve shot, and because um, there the, were shoot, there were supposedly shoot to kill orders. Definitely was a shoot to kill order, there was a and shoot, it was shoot to kill order. it was started by Mayor Schmitz. It was based on nothing. One of the things in the court cases that I found the transcripts, he admitted when cross examined, and it was great to find this because finally under oath, I'm sitting there as as an attorney saying, please get him on this, and they said. Why did you issue the shoot-to-kill order? Because that was the defense so many of the defendants were using. We were under orders. Uh, we knew the city was under martial law. It wasn't. There was no displacement of the civil government by the army, even though effectively it kind of happened. But he issued shoot-to-kill orders and later said, oh, it was because of looting, because we got reports of looting under cross-examination with the other witnesses who were around him at the time. Uh, he knew he couldn't lie, and he said, I had not gotten any reports of looting. I did it with a foresight of maybe there would be looting. So he issues that. General Funston is perfectly fine with it. He had ordered his soldiers into the city armed uh, anyway uh, with full ammunition. So he probably foresaw it. He certainly went along with it, and it went until General Greeley, the commander of the division, came back on Monday this shoot-to-kill order, egregiously illegal order. And it wasn't just for looting. It was a shoot-to-kill anyone that you suspect of looting, whatever standard that is, or committing any other crime. And as I was a former prosecutor, I'm a defense attorney, that's, that's atrocious. That, that kind of language gives a 19-year-old soldier with an armed rifle, and, and these soldiers included 
ROTC cadets from from Cal that had never held uh, a loaded weapon before. They include volunteer militiamen that put on their old National Guard uniforms from 10 years earlier and got their rifle and went out into the street. Uh, And they're under shoot-to-kill orders. Mm -hmm. And I'm surprised, I will say, the story in this, aside from the egregious illegality of Schmitz and Funston um, and their orders, was the, the only reason more people were not shot and killed was the professionalism of the soldiers that that decided not to. One of the most tragic moments was a group of Red Cross volunteers. Mm-hmm. They're going through the darkened streets, I think, on Valencia Street or uh, in the Mission somewhere. That's right. And uh, they come across some armed militiamen and... Mm-hmm. Uh, they had signs saying they were Red Cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should let you tell a story. What uh, happens then? I'm, I have so many names swimming. I think that yeah. was Heber Tilden. Um, Three men, yeah. D- driving up. It might have been yes. Guerrero, but it's through the mission, and he's mission. driving north, and every other block had a traffic checkpoint of, they were supposed to be soldiers, but these were militia. They were National Guardsmen. Some of them were just volunteer um, citizens that had been deputized by the mayor's committee of 50 special citizens. And uh, they're armed, and they're at these traffic points to make sure that sightseers and tourists don't come up the peninsula and come up into the city. Um, well, they have a Red Cross sign, and they're driving through, and the, the they don't hear any orders to stop. They go through, they're accelerating to make their way up the hill, and um, they get shot from behind, and he gets shot and killed. Uh, and that was prosecuted, the men that shot him, and they were found not guilty because, or it was dismissed by the judge, because of the shoot-to-kill orders that they were still working under at the time. Well, the character that, to me at least, most closely resembles your villain in this is Funston, General mm-hmm. Funston, who really went wild mm-hmm. with, you know, his bosses out of town. Sorry for not using the proper military terms, <laughs> but uh, tell us a little bit about him. Um, I, I had known the name of Funston. He was the senior army general when World War One broke out, and by fate of circumstance, he died of a heart attack suddenly. So John Pershing ended up taking our AEF, which I would say is history being very kind to us. Um, Funston was a self-promoter. Uh, he was MacArthur before MacArthur. Uh, he was not a professional soldier. He was, uh, he had volunteered himself down to fight with the Cuban army. Then he went, uh, and got, used his father, who was a congressman, his connections to become a colonel of uh, volunteers to fight in the Philippines when we were working as really colonial occupier in the Philippines against the Moros rebels. And um, he he publishes accounts in newspapers and sends a, a self-promoting accounts back home to the extent that uh, he ends up getting the Medal of Honor awarded for dressing up as an enemy prisoner of war and then captures the leader of the rebels. Um, and so he earns this fame, President Roosevelt, gives him a commission as a one-star general, which he could do then. And um, he starts his career in the Army as a one-star general. And it was only a general for a few years before this. He he had fallen out of favor with Roosevelt's administration and Secretary of uh, War Taft because his 
even as imperialistic as they might have been, they didn't like the stuff he was saying about the Philippines and about senators who differed with uh, policy in the Philippines. So they kind of muzzled him and said, stop talking. So he's uh, kind of subjugated to the Department of California, which the army structure then was, there was a Pacific division that had two departments. One of them was the Department of California, which oversaw all uh, military posts in California and the Hawaiian Islands. He was given that role. He was working under the division commander, Greeley, and Major General Greeley, who was a regular army soldier and had uh, was a Civil War combat vet and was out of town uh, for his daughter's wedding. And so when the earthquake strikes by fate of circumstance, Funston's the acting commander. He takes, uh, it lives in the city, he sees the fires breaking out and sends a messenger to Fort Mason and Presidio to call out all available troops, fully armed, to come to, I think he probably said to City Hall. He later said Hall of Justice, but they were headed to City Hall when Mayor Schmitz intercepted them, but then brought them in. And so by that first night, there's 1,700 troops in the city. Holy moly. So on... He he did not. Um, his behavior was not admirable for the most part. But you show us a number of instances of neighbors banding together in bucket brigades and people acting really heroically, and I really appreciate reading about that and very specific instances of that happening, um, and and saving swaths of neighborhoods mm-hmm. such as North Beach. Right. Um, That's and, right. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, about people people behaving well and, and generously? Sure. That really happened. In, um, well, I, I detail the accounts that happened down in the mission. Uh, in, in particular, there was a, a lot of neighbors that came together and would help the fire department find where the cisterns were that had been overgrown. And, um, and in North Beach, many of them had fleed, many of the residents had fleed down Telegraph Hill to the waterfront and saw that the fires were approaching their homes and they said, we're going up there to fight it. And they went up there and used, uh, there there were barrels of wine that they were able to use to help fight the flames. (laughs) And some people had (laughs) saved water in bathtubs and they formed bucket brigades. And um, Russian Hill in particular, the second night, uh, uh, two, I guess a four block area of, of neighbors were talking green Vallejo streets, um, between Leavenworth and Taylor. Um, those blocks of neighbors were able, the, the army came to try to dynamite this one man's house, Louis Fusier. Uh, he had one of the oct- octagonal, uh, homes. And it's still there because he said, you're not, you're not dynamite in my house. And they put the dynamite in his back shed and he chased him off. And the neighbors came together and they said, you're not getting our neighborhood. You're not dynamite in our houses. We'll fight them. And they got on rooftops and with wet towels and wet bedsheets, fought off every time a, a cinder would land on a rooftop, they'd put it out. They saved all those homes. You can still go up to Green Street and see there are, I believe, three in a row. I've gone and taken photographs, including Mr. Fusier's home. 
Uh, and uh, do you have those photographs? In I don't have collection? them in this. No, yeah. but you can you can go up there if you're feeling fit and want to get your steps in. <laughs> nah. <laughs> <laughs> and there were also great examples of foresight. And you know, he's such a famous character. Uh, Bank of Italy founder A.P. Giannini. Mm-hmm. Tell us about what he did during the earthquake. Oh, he was, he, what a fantastic story. Um, and I think most people know his story, but I still can't go to where Columbus, um, Columbus intersects with Washington and, and see that corner and not think of where the Bank of Italy began, um, that he he founds the Bank of Italy there for really the working class. Now, ironically, it's Bank of America now. Um, but let's go back to its start. Um, he founds it for the, the working class residents, it's mostly Italian-American residents in North Beach, as many people know, and knows most of his customers uh, by name, knows their businesses, knows their credit limits, and and knows them very well. So uh, he did not have safes that were strong enough to keep his um, his cash and gold and silver reserve overnight. So he would house them down in, um, I think it was Crocker, um, and his employees would go down there every morning with pistols on horseback and get... <laughs> The, from the overnight vaults of the bank and bring it back to Bank of Italy to put there for the day. Well, they opened for the day. Even though the earthquake had happened, the bank was not badly damaged, they opened for business. Wow. And he lived down the peninsula, so he comes up on horseback and finds the bank not badly damaged, but starts to worry about the fire spreading and uh, worry about lawlessness and says, we probably don't need to be open as a bank today. And so he knew because, and and most people in North Beach knew because they read La Italia, uh, which was the Italian uh, speaking language newspaper there, um, of Vesuvius that had just happened, the eruption of Vesuvius had just happened, and the bankers around uh, Naples in particular could not, they had lost all their cash because they opened the bank safes and vaults the very next day and because the contents were heated as soon as oxygen hit them they they just incinerated well he knew that and so he said i gotta get the the, the safes out of the city so he puts them on a produce wagon and covers them with produce and he <laughs> and a, and with pistols they sneak their way out through the refugees around the fire line the first night and keep them down the peninsula until the fires are out, and then he comes back into town with his with his loot, and all the other banks are having to wait fourteen days to to for their safes to sufficiently cool. The governor starts a bank holiday, declares a bank holiday. The only other place where the credit could be extended was the Mint, which is a big story. Um, but he had Medio Giannini is the only one with cash reserve and starts uh right up, starts business back out of his brother's house on on Venice and uh out on the waterfront legendary with with planks on two barrels uh, i think 5 days after the disaster yeah, you got to love that story it's fantastic it's a fantastic story yes. the part, the part of the story that i'm most familiar with is what happened in Chinatown and Chinatown of course was mm-hmm completely raised by the fires. Um, But what's really astonishing is that the Chinese community was shunted from one place to the other. Nobody wanted that group of people 
camping near them. They were treated terribly. Um, yet they also had the foresight to think about where they were going to rebuild very quickly and very smart about how they made that happen and ended up back in the original area of Portsmouth Square. And you found a wonderful character, uh, the Presbyterian minister turned newspaper publisher to follow. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about him. Ng Poon Chu, yes, uh, who was a, a, a good character in your book as well. Uh, Ng Poon Chu, uh, he, uh, his newspaper, the, let me say it, Chang Sai Po, um, was the largest circulating paper in Chinatown, and he had he had gone to great lengths to get that up and running. And so, when the the fires start approaching Chinatown, he is unable; he's not allowed by soldiers back into his business, his third floor business, and his business uh, and and his book and everything burn. He ends up relocating with his, they stay in Golden Gate Park, but he ends up relocating to Oakland as so many Chinese Americans did in residence Chinatown after the disaster. And from Oakland, he works to get the, at great lengths, to get the newspaper up and running again and gets it up and running, I think, within five days of the disaster. And it happens to be the same day that former Mayor uh, Phelan and Mayor Schmitz and Abe Roof and these familiar names are familiar starting scoundrels. their their racist <laughs> tirade yeah. about let's get Chinatown out of the city. We finally can use this as an excuse to push him down the peninsula. And so he uses a couple of methods, one of and, and very wisely, he uses the newspaper to organize the residents and he uh to then co- pull their resources to hire a good local white attorney to represent them and to get the white property owners, the landlords on board with insisting that Chinatown stay where it is because it was lucrative for them and also gets the secretary of the Chinese delegation to talk with Governor Pardee about uh, Chinese-owned property in Chinatown. And with all that together, he's able to organize to keep Chinatown in the heart of the city where it was and where it still is. And he was instrumental in that. And without him, I don't know that it would have happened. Now, I really like the inspirational stories, you know, mm-hmm. the, the names of people that we should remember Absolutely. today. And uh, really, really appreciated those very much. So it's time to start taking some questions of Matt. And, um, and if we run out of questions, I'd say let's go back to see some more photographs. But I have a feeling there are going to be a bunch of questions here. So, um, and I think that most of you, why don't we pass around the... Um, there's a gentleman at the front who had a question. I guess my question is, did you get to do any other research for the book besides archival stuff? Because, I mean, like I've, I have a little bit of connection with the earthquake, even though I wasn't born yet, because, I mean, I know, there, I know that there was APG Nini Middle School, and um, I had a friend who did a lot of um, SF walking tours, mm-hmm. and I actually... He's originally from Ireland, but he lived here for about five or six years. And I did a walk with him, like, around Chinatown, like, where that part of the earthquake was. And um, he talked about the mayor being, an, uh, not, or not the mayor, the um, fire chief at the time being an Irish guy. And he, <laughs> he kept saying, oh, there's an earthquake, but nobody w- would want to listen to him. Mm-hmm. And 
I think the Irish community didn't want didn't like the Chinese folks in Chinatown very much, and mm-hmm. I guess. So, is your question about uh, Mayor uh, Fire Chief Sullivan, or is it about his research? I, I guess. Did you get to do any art? Did you get to do any other research like that besides the archival stuff? I guess is my question. So. Oh yes, I I did. Um, I actually did. Oh gosh, uh, four. I would set up walking tours with the volunteers. They were, were so nice. Um, two with geologists uh, and one with a retired firefighter that, who would take me around and show me how he used to operate. He's also um, He also did a lot of stuff with the Firefighter Museum. And then I took one with just the public because I wanted to see what they would – I just took the Barbie, Barbary Coast one because I wanted to know more about that. But the geology tour would tell me more where the fill land was and how foundations worked then how they work now. So I could learn more about it. Yeah. Well, and I would say the last scene of your book is is quite wonderful because you go to Lotus Fountain at five mm-hmm. eighteen a.m. in two thousand two, two thousand one, two thousand twenty. The last two years, I've I've gone to the ceremony. Yeah, and you described that wonderful scene. Mm-hmm. And uh, so yes, you- I I did attend the ceremony. I tried to attend in twenty twenty, and of course, COVID hit twenty twenty one. It, I thought it was canceled, and then it wasn't, and I was very upset that I didn't come. <laughs> so the last two years, I've gone to Lotus Fountain and the Gilding of the Hydrant at the Mission. That is a fantastic event, uh, and it really is moving to see everyone come together and remember that moment. Yes. I, your theories were different than the ones I heard. Like I heard the fires started because so many houses collapsed because the women would put the embers in the fireplace mm-hmm. and then the houses would collapse and I didn't hear your commercial theory before. I heard right. many, many houses collapsing. Well, and that's one of the myths. So I, I, that's one of the myths and uh, especially Hayes Valley. It's called the ham and egg fire yes, exactly. and that is not that okay. is not, it's not based in any evidence at all. That, I that love started, it. Bunking myths. Yes. Awesome. So the, the <laughs> ham and egg fire started because of a newspaper article that came out five weeks after the disaster where they said Every, uh, this must have happened because a woman started breakfast on a uh, stove, an oven that was connected to a broken chimney. In the exact same article, it says, no one who witnessed it saw where it originated. <laughs> so then I look at, well, it started there. I found a photograph of its origination, the very first beginning. It was five doors down from Hayes and Goff. And I looked through... Uh, records to find voter registration records and city directories to find who lived in these and the first floor of all those row houses were retail those were commercial uh you had a cigar shop and things like that and then the second and third floors were flats that were occupied mostly by men uh mostly laborers there was a couple of families but it started probably in a cigar store five doors down in the first floor the caption at bancroft contemporaneous with the event says it started in Posner's cigar store no one's ever talked about that it was probably started by a man but just like Miss O'Leary's cow it becomes legend Mm -hmm. thank you for debunking the myth (laughs) appreciate that that no matter what the um, corruption was that it wasn't going to work because they're all clay pipes so if they were all clay pipes even if they were wider, it wouldn't have helped in the sense. Did they have another technology then other than clay pipes? They were cast iron, and they were brittle. Okay. Um, so these the are water pipes? Water pipes. The transmission mains and the distribution mains were, were, were iron, and so they were brittle. 
in fill land, soft fill land. So my other question is about the three hydrants that did work. I heard that there was mm -hmm. one, as you know, the Golden, and you said there was one at Hayes and Buchanan. Why? I have a particular theory besides attended the Golden Hydrant event maybe 30 times because it's right around the corner from me in the Mission District. Mm -hmm. but I have a theory about Noe Valley, but I'm just generally curious about why those three fire hydrants worked while the rest of the city did not. The Spring Valley Water Company had uh, storage reservoirs in, and then he had, and then it had distribution reservoirs in the city. And the distribution reservoirs that fed those two groups of hydrants were still intact. And the transmission mains along Buchanan Street through Hayes Valley, for example, was still intact. I was able to look at the map and I pinpointed where all 30 I th maybe 40 hydrants that they found that worked out of 4,000. And where they are are in a line with these intact transmission mains. And so all along Eddy Street, all along Buchanan, and all uh, up to 20th in the Mission worked only because of those pipes. So the American Medical Association for years had been trying to eliminate these tonics because um, they were harmful to patients. Mm -hmm. People... Uh, would put their hopes that, uh, you know, being cured uh, mm -hmm. and, and their life savings into buying these tonics. And so after many years, finally, in 1906, they succeeded in, uh, past, in Theodore Roosevelt passing the Food and Drug Administration mm -hmm. Act. So the FDA was founded uh, in 1906, and slowly these uh, tonics became eliminated. Mm -hmm. So um, I've which makes me wonder if this earthquake had happened like in 1916, would you have had so much of a fire? But so I'm, I'm stunned to hear your research now, more than a hundred years later about the <laughs> contribution of these tonics, not, not just towards the, the harm of the health and, and um, finances. That's right. The sick, but towards this fire, how certain are you about this? That, that, I was. This came from the that actually came from the testimony of the drugstore owner, who said I stored these chemicals uh, and and they had kerosene and I don't know what they're using wow. kerosene in a jar for, um, but they, they had oxidizers and kerosene and they had a diethyl ether was used as uh, kind of an anesthetic then uh, and it was very combustible and there's a laundry list of them. I'm not a scientist and I was very bad at chemistry, but I remember those names, and they when they would mix, they would combust, and I was surprised that eight of the first fires were in drugstores. Thank you for all these wonderful stories. <laughs> Have you given any thought to the differences or the similarities between this earthquake and Loma Prieta? Yes, and I, I talk about that in, I think it's in the af afterward, uh, and I do talk about the, the differences that when Loma Prieta struck uh, 6.9, of course, uh, 15 seconds, um, that there were similarities. There was a building that uh, peeled away and killed five people in uh, South of Market. And there were fires, as many know, in the Marina District. But they were contained to a block because the auxiliary water system ended up working. And the fire boat uh, came to help the fire department. Within hours, they had were able to extinguish those fires. If it was 1906, they wouldn't have been able. They didn't have the auxiliary water system then. So that was very much learning the lesson. I, I say that in the afterwards that everyone talks about history, doesn't repeat itself, but it, it does echo. 
And thankfully, the echoing in 1989 was limited to those instances. Of course, there was the collapse of the freeway, which was the an infrastructure issue, but uh, and most of the deaths. But in the city, 1906 didn't happen again, thankfully. You describe some bribery, some nepotism, other factors that were greatly responsible. And I'm just wondering if after the dust settled, anybody was held to task or held responsible or prosecuted. There are a famous series of cases called the graft prosecutions that happened starting in 1907, and they went all the way till 1911 or 12. Uh, And... um, Let's see, Abe Roof, uh, Mayor Schmitz, and many of uh, the United Railroads executives, uh, uh, there were quite a few uh, supervisors that were indicted or given immunity to testify against them. Mayor Schmitz was convicted, but it was reversed on appeal, uh, very much on a technicality. And I don't say that as an attorney. So <laughs> I will tell you, uh, uh, Abe Roof was convicted and sent to San Quentin and, and served five years. Uh, of it was um, it, it was uh, I'm forgetting the exact crime. It was bri- It was extortion, extortion. public extortion, and multiple counts uh, in the indictments. Uh, and the newspapers, especially the record, the reporter at the time, which covered court cases, did a good job of covering each day of testimony. But there was so much that happened there. In the afterword of the book, I talk about how one witness ends up uh, getting a bond. Their house gets. Uh, bombed at night so they flee to Canada and never come back the acting the police chief is then convicted of perjury the next police chief is then uh it disappears from a ferry boat ride that he's on with one officer um one of the jurors is charged with uh graft themselves and they end up shooting the prosecutor in court <laughs> prosecutor lives the juror then commits suicide in the jail so anyway. And that's why we love San Francisco so much. So thanks to Matt Davenport, author of The Longest Minute, The Great San Francisco Earthquake and Fire of 1906. And we encourage everyone to pick up a copy of Matt's book here or at your local bookstore. And again, I highly, highly recommend it. Thank you, Matt. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.